Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Welcome to a special episode of the show. It's Christmas time again, and we at the Skeptics Bible Project wanted to do something appropriate for the season. So today we are going to focus on the biblical accounts of the birth of Jesus. We're going to talk about the two birth narratives given in Matthew and Luke, then discuss the similarities and differences between them. Also, we'll look at the claims of conservative Christians that the Christmas stories in the Bible are historically accurate. So, let's dive in. Anyone who's been to church for a Christmas service probably has heard some basic account of the birth of Jesus. Usually the story involves angels singing, a star, shepherds in a field, and then, of course, Jesus being born in a manger. But don't forget about the census and the Magi and the visit to Egypt. Actually, most of the elements of the Christmas story come from two totally different stories. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke are telling completely different stories. So, let's take a look at these accounts side by side and see what they have in common. So, there are a few common elements in um, each of the stories, each of the birth narratives, even though they're really... Um, fundamentally telling different stories. Um, there are details that um, either elements of the plot or um, uh, details of the story that they share in common. Um, both of the narratives have uh, annunciation stories. So uh, there's an announcement of Jesus's birth um, to people before he's born um, in each of the Gospels. Um there's a genealogy of um, Jesus's family's Jesus family line in each of the Gospels, um, and they're included in the birth narrative um, in, I believe it's Matthew, but uh, they're later on in the Gospel in Luke, if I'm getting that right. But um, genealogies in each. Um, there's uh, the uh, fact that Mary's pregnant, um, and it's before her and Joseph are wed, um, during their betrothal period, um, and before they were living together. So that's a common element in each of the stories. Um, Joseph was not Jesus's biological father. Um, that's true um, in each of the narratives. Uh, Jesus was a descendant of King David, is um, a common element in the genealogies and in the stories, that he was born during the reign of Herod the Great. Um, both of the Gospels agree on that. And that he was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth. Uh, both of the Gospels agree on that. 
Um, the problem is that these elements um, that they share in common um, either have contradictory elements uh, intermixed or they're used for different reasons um, and with a different logic in the story. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later um, amongst the contradictions. Um, I also think it's interesting to note that um, the both of the narratives use the Old Testament, but they use it in very different ways. So uh, Matthew is um, consumed with Jesus fulfilling prophecies and uses the Old Testament to um, show proof in his mind of Jesus fulfilling messianic prophecy. And Luke has his characters speaking through um, the... Uh, using Old Testament passages and um, speaking um, with allusion to Old Testament scripture um, and uh, takes uh, elements from, both authors take elements from the Old Testament and intermix it with their plot as well. Yeah, the um, the tone in uh, between Matthew and Luke, like the literary tone, are completely different. And that's probably something we're going to return to when we go through this because um, the claim by conservative Christians is that these stories are both completely historically accurate, and um, it really makes absolutely no sense um, comparing just the tone between Matthew and Luke, because you have Matthew, this sense of kind of doom surrounding, or a, a kind of a dark tone surrounding the events that you have basically people after Mary, Joseph, and Jesus to kill them, and they're, they're fleeing and escaping. Whereas in Luke, it's really kind of a joyful uh, tone about uh, the birth of Messiah, and you have um, all of Jerusalem kind of celebrating this, and Jesus being presented in the temple, which really just doesn't make any sense in the narrative, according to Matthew. We're going to later in Bible versus Bible talk about the genealogies more specifically, um, and whether they line up or not. But um, let's go through some of the um, uh, contradictions um, that we find between uh, Matthew and Luke. Um, so first we have the question of who the announcement of the birth was directed to. Um, in Matthew, it's Joseph who's informed first. Um, so you can see that in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. In Luke, um, it's Zechariah who finds out and then Mary. Then we have the way that they receive the announcement. Um, ben, do you want to take this one? So it is both angels, um, but the way that the angels appear is different. So um, Matthew always has things revealed through dreams. Um so it's angelic. Uh, it's an angelic visitation to Joseph, but it's a message that he receives through a dream. Um, in Luke, the angels actually appear, um, like the vision of the angels appear literally um, to uh, to Mary, to Zechariah, and uh, we'll talk about later. Um, they show up again in the story in uh, in reality. So angels in both cases, but the way that the angels reveal themselves is a different motif. Then we have the question of why Jesus was in Bethlehem to begin with. In Matthew, it's because Mary and Joseph live in Bethlehem. 
In Luke, it's because they had to travel to Bethlehem for the census, um, which Luke says they were required to travel to their ancestral city. Um, this was not actually a historical requirement, so that's another kind of contradiction we see there both between the text and between historical records. We also have the contradiction of where in Bethlehem Jesus was born. In Matthew, because Mary and Joseph live in Bethlehem, he was born at home. In Luke, um, because Mary and Jesus are traveling there for the census, he is born in makeshift surroundings, apparently some sort of stable at the inn. Um, we can see that in Luke 2, 6 through 7. Then we have the question of who are the guests at the birth? In Matthew, um, and I remember my dad always trying to explain this to me, um, so it's funny to go back all these years later and really just see how the texts are not aligned, um, but in Matthew, the Magi are guests, and in Luke, it's shepherds who are there. Um, Luke 2.8, uh, they show up at the stable. How do these guests know to find Jesus? Uh, the Magi are directed by a star and then King Herod. Um, after they pay their respects to Jesus, they leave and angels give them instructions not to report back to Herod because things with Herod take a turn for the worst. And in Luke, uh, the shepherds know to find Jesus because of the angels. Um, they tell him, you know, the, the angels tell the shepherds, you're going to find a baby wrapped in clothes and laying in a manger. What happens after the birth? Here we have another contradiction. Um, so King Herod now in Matthew, is ordering the murder of all of the baby boys in the Bethlehem area. Um, Joseph has a dream that warns him of this plan, and so he takes Mary and Jesus to Egypt, see Matthew 2.14, and they stay there until Herod dies. Luke, very, very different situation happening. 40 days, so Jesus is born. 40 days later, the family goes to Jerusalem to meet its religious obligations in the temple. After that, they return home to Nazareth right away. This is perhaps like one of the biggest contradictions in these two narratives. And we'll probably talk about this more in a bit. And then why is Jesus from Nazareth? Um, like, why is he known as being from Nazareth? In Matthew, the family returns to Israel, right? After Herod has died, um, they leave Egypt, they come back to Israel. But Joseph has another dream and this dream tells them not to return to Bethlehem, but to, they, but to go to Nazareth, and that's where they settle. So Jesus, you know, uh, grows up or spends the majority of his life growing up in Nazareth, and that's why he's considered from there. Whereas in Luke, Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth and travel to Bethlehem to register in that census. Yeah, I think uh, that, that verse in Luke... Um... Let's see. No, the verse in Matthew uh, where they moved to Nazareth, I think, is one of the most damning uh, factoids in the in like this narrative for uh, those proponents of a historically accurate and non-contradictory text, because it basically says in Matthew twenty-two, Matthew two verses twenty-two and twenty-three that. They settled in Nazareth almost as a concession, like they were going to settle uh, somewhere else, but the dream directed them away out of fear um, to settle in Nazareth. Like, and it basically says like they settled in a land called Nazareth as if they've never been there before or heard of it before, whereas in Luke, that's where they're from. 
Um, so, so, you know, what you have is you have two authors here who are trying to craft a story. It's pretty obvious. They're trying to craft a story, and they have certain elements about the historical Jesus that they all believe to be true. For instance, they believe he was born in Bethlehem, or at least they need to get him in Bethlehem. But they also know that he's Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody knows Jesus comes from Nazareth. So the story has to answer these questions. How was he born in Bethlehem, and how is he from Nazareth as an adult? And both of these stories answer these questions, but they answer them in completely different ways for completely and completely different reasons. And it's, you know, you mentioned your father telling you, you know, trying to explain these things to you. And the same with me growing up, you, I had um, everyone in the church, you know, most people didn't actually focus on these like problems, but you did hear things uh, of people trying to harmonize them. And, and harmonizing the birth narratives, I think, is one of the largest fool's errand that you can do because you really can't harmonize them like without just completely bastardizing the text. And I wanted to um, talk to Ben a little bit about this because Ben uh, has been really engaging with people on Reddit and, uh, and, and I would say a very respectful way, but you know, Ben has basically put out a challenge to Christians in the, in the uh, Christianity Reddit to say, Hey, these are the elements of the story and this is the order that they, they happen in the various gospels, just harmonize them, put them in the, in an order that makes sense without having any contradictory notions and watching the, first of all, the answers they give. And I have to say, there's been, there's been a lot of very, um, more reasonable Christians on there that will kind of admit, yeah, there are problems. You can't harmonize them. And, and they view the, they view the stories in a, uh, in a different way, but the, the, the more conservatives, on Reddit, who are really engaging and trying to make this work, I, it's just been like hilarious watching them tie themselves into knots, trying to make sense of these accounts, and uh, and and then watching Ben very artfully and again respectfully, um, kind of refuting their claims. Ben, can you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I just wanted to sort of, so one of the things that's a problem is I don't think anybody really wants to take up the challenge of trying to harmonize these accounts. What they'll do is take the points that we raised, the like critical points, and try to attack maybe one of them to try to make sense of it. So I'm going to just try to answer a few of the points that people brought up on Reddit that I thought were um, worthwhile, and also in the process lay out what I think would be a reasonable um, harmonization or combination of the two stories and then show how that just really is not telling the same story as either of the two accounts. So it's not being faithful to the Bible. It's actually creating your own Bible that's not faithful to either of the two accounts. And um, that although it may solve one or two historical problems, um, these points that people raise, they don't deal with the underlying uh, fundamental issue that it's just two different stories. Um, and I think like the way to look at it that is most effective is the geography that happens in the story. So in um, Luke's account, they begin in um, Nazareth. And in Nazareth, um, before the census, in Luke's account, there are an announcement to Mary that she's going to have Jesus. And then they travel to Bethlehem, like right on the eve of Jesus being born. 
they go to Bethlehem for the census. It's so close to Jesus' birth that they have nowhere to go when they're in Bethlehem, have to uh, stay outside of a shelter, and Jesus is born in a manger. Okay. Now in Matthew, they begin in Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, uh, Joseph is thinking about leaving Mary because of the pregnancy. This is before she's moved into a house in Bethlehem with Joseph. He's considering leaving. And Joseph receives an announcement that says, no, stay with Mary. The child is, is uh, from God. Okay. So here's where we have our first problem. How is Joseph traveling for a census on the eve of the birth when he's worried about the, this uh, child's conception being a scandal and has already received an announcement in Bethlehem? So you have to believe that they live in Nazareth to start. They travel to Bethlehem. They have the Joseph goes, despite his concerns about this pregnancy, to Bethlehem and somehow receives the announcement um, after they settle in a house in Bethlehem. So again, you're already running into like huge problems. Um, obviously, we've talked before. A lot of people have said, well, it doesn't say explicitly that he was born in a house in Matthew. Um but it talks about Joseph's house earlier on in Matthew when it talks about the announcement. So it's clear there's a house in Bethlehem that Joseph owns. So the, the time frame is problematic because Joseph has to receive the announcement in Matthew in Bethlehem. And Mary has to receive the announcement in Nazareth, in Luke. And Joseph has to be like somehow... Um, traveling with Mary on the eve of the birth in Luke, even though he's got doubts in Matthew that have to be assured by some sort of uh, angelic announcement that happens in Bethlehem in Matthew. So th those are the first issues. Um, then you have the birth. The birth is not announced or is not actually narrated in Matthew. So people use that gap to say that though the, the, the shepherds can come, um, I mean, we've already illustrated that there's problems with the, um, the house <laughs> versus the shelter because there's no reason for them to be in a shelter if they have a house, like that says in Matthew, Joseph has a house. But in Luke, they're in a shelter because there's no room in, they're in a, a manger because there's no room in a shelter. So again, logically, these, these issues shouldn't be happening if the harmonization is true. Um, and they say, again, it's like gaps. So any gap in the story, they used to fill in with the story from the other gospel. So because um, Matthew has them starting in Bethlehem, but doesn't talk about anything before that, I, they can be from Nazareth, like Luke says, and just travel to Bethlehem. But we've but, shown that that logically is problematic. Ben, I, I read one guy on Reddit responding to you saying that... Um, yeah, he was born in a house. There, were, there was just animals in the house. Yeah. I mean, again, like, okay, so that <laughs> solves the problem. Maybe that solves the problem for you. I mean, it doesn't solve the problem because it's not what Luke is saying. Luke isn't saying it's in a house with animals. Luke is saying it's outside of a shelter where there's no room and he's laying in a manger. 
Yeah, it's so, ridiculous. I mean, you know, I totally it's like agree. taking an element from the nativity scene and trying to make sense of it, but it's not taking what the actual text is saying and trying to make sense of it. No, and if you, I mean, go through all of the types of things these people do to get out of the problems, you end up with this ridiculous story. You have like animals in the house and them and them like traveling all over the place from Egypt and back and forth, and Mary's pregnant, and it it completely makes no sense. I don't know if mathematically. You could put it on paper and say, mathematically, it is possible that these accounts are not contradictory. Maybe you can do that. But it's absurd. And um, the, and not to mention just the amount of things that each individual major parts of a story that like you would not leave out. Like Matthew would not leave out the, all of the important things that are in Luke if, if he thought it were true. And Luke would not leave out all those important things from Matthew if he thought it were true. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Like, Luke is supposed to be the historian's um, gospel, right? I mean, even though we know he has historical problems, but he doesn't have anything. He puts in a census and gets the, the date wrong, but he doesn't put in this giant massacre that happens under Herod um, of, of all the infants under two years old, because I guess that's not, like, an important detail that Luke says, even though it was, like, specifically targeting Jesus and would show that, like, he was a threat to... Royalty. That's not important for Luke's uh, Luke's go- uh, gospel account. Well, I um, mean, I've yeah, I've always thought like like I said before about the tone, the idea that you know after Jesus' birth in Luke, he's presented in the temple, and it talks about these these different individuals that like rejoice to finally see the Messiah um, being born in and uh, presented in Jerusalem, and there was there was like a what was the ritual that was involved with. Um, what is it, eight days or 40 days after the birth then? I think it has to be within 30 days. And and it's basically saying, like, Jerusalem w- like was kind of buzzing with the uh, joyful birth of Jesus. But it completely goes against Matthew's birth narrative that says he was under threat of being killed by Herod. Like, the last thing they would do <laughs> is bring Jesus right into the lion's den and especially like when it talks about how all these people were rejoicing about it, that just makes zero sense in light of Matthew. Um, so Yeah, and I mean, it's clear when Matthew's telling the story. So like the, all the infants under two years old are killed. There's a bunch of numbers that end up being problematic too. Like, so you have the, the temple dedication that happens in Luke. Well, that's got to happen in 30 days. So that doesn't leave you a lot of time for them to be... Um, doing anything in that 30-day period that you want to fill in from Matthew's gospel. And the Magi, um, it's every baby under two years old. So yeah, maybe you can stretch their visit back two years, but it makes even less sense in the plot once you actually like put out those details because then you have them traveling back to Nazareth and Luke um, and then fleeing from Nazareth to Egypt, but then coming back towards Bethlehem and being directed back towards Nazareth as if they've never been there before. So it's it just like everything just creates this, like you deal with a problem that's there maybe to harmonize, but it doesn't harmonize the two narratives. It just creates other problems and it creates a third narrative that doesn't harmonize with either Luke or Matthew. And, and yeah, the tone is what you're, I mean, the tone is like the reason to read the the stories like the the way that Matthew's telling it is like a king under threat like Moses was um 
you know, like uh, people under threat as if like the pat like the Passover, um, a crazy king that's like um, slaughtering children because he's threatened by a baby. Um, and like the revelation of Jesus is all happening to people individually through dreams. Luke is like proclamations everywhere, announcements everywhere. Everybody's joyful. We're going to the temple. Um, you know, Jesus's humble birth, like, but is contrasted by like angelic uh, beings appearing to shepherds and like, it, like the tone when you combine the two narratives makes no sense. It just, there's, there's no tone to it at all. Like you're losing what the authors are trying to portray in the way that they tell the story. And I think that's like the most frustrating thing. Um, you know, you can, the, somebody sent me a thing about maybe Josephus got the date of the, uh, the census wrong. I mean, even, okay, so Josephus, let's, let's assume that, that that's even true. And Josephus got the, the uh, census wrong. It doesn't, like, maybe that's helped Luke when it comes to the census, but it doesn't solve the problem. I found a quote from Raymond Brown's Birth of the Messiah, which is sort of like the definitive um, text if you really want to get in depth on the uh, birth narratives. Um, and so what he says is, if the notice about the census stood by itself, there would be some problems about the extent and manner of registration, again, like the traveling to Bethlehem, but the chronology would cause no difficulty. Augustus reigned from 44 uh, or 42 BC to AD 14. Quirinius became governor of Legate of Syria in AD 6 and conducted a census of Judea, not of Galilee, in AD 6 and 7. The last mentioned date would then be implicit fixed for Luke as the year of the birth of Jesus. That would be 6 or 7 AD. But the chrono chronological information in chapter 2 of Luke does not stand by itself. And when we compare it with other chronological information that he has given to us in 1.5, in 3.1, and, and in 3.23, there seems to be an, irre an irreconcilable conflict. So again, Luke conflicts himself in his tying of Jesus' birth to this census. It doesn't solve the problems. Like, they're telling two different stories. If we're talking really quickly, I'll jump in about Josephus. I mean, look at the account of um, the death of Herod in Acts. And it basically talks about how he was, like, eaten, devoured by worms in front of the audience, in front of a crowd. Um, because he was, you know, wanting to be worshipped like a god in like a shiny coat or something. Well, Josephus actually, the historian Josephus tells the, that same account. But he, what he says is, no, he, um, I think it does talk about that speech. But then he died like of some kind of like stomach ailment, like in the like weeks after, like in, in a certain time after, which seems like a lot more like historically plausible than like he was kind of supernaturally devoured by worms in front of the crowd. So like, just take that into account when you're trying to say that Josephus is less believable than Luke or the author of Luke Acts. So um, that's just kind of an aside. And like I said, we're going to talk a little bit more about the historicity. But all of this is to say, like our point, like anyone who's heard this podcast, is that like the conservative Christian viewpoint about how we got the Bible and what the Bible is, is simply wrong. They will claim that these are 
histories. They're, they're both biographies and they're histories. And like we can completely rely on the genealogies as being 100% accurate. We can rely on the history given as being this is really what happened in, in history. And any, anybody that says no, they're just stories to um, illustrate the majesty of Christ. Or, but they were, they were constructed stories. They will say, oh, no, you're, you're a radical liberal and, and, and that's wrong. But this is not, you know, John, Ben, and Katie saying these things. This is like all modern scholarship, like in unison. There are almost no scholars, except like the most conservative evangelical um, scholars out there that will claim that you can really rely on these as accurate histories. I also just want to make a quick comment on the way that people are trying to resolve the birth narratives on Reddit. Um, just these, these like narrative gymnastics that are happening. I haven't been looking at the Reddit, but it sounds to me like it's all men coming up with this because there's no way in hell that like Mary as like a mother with a newborn would be like, yes, sure. Let's run all over like the Middle East while I'm trying to take care of this infant and recover. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, having that perspective is important. And yeah, when I'm on the um, the Christian Reddit, the people answering this appear to be men. I would say that it's mostly men. I mean, I don't think that the these narratives are not written. Um, I mean, Luke does a better job of giving Mary's perspective. Matthew uses Mary as like a literary tool <laughs> it's like very <laughs> inappropriate like her perspective is not mary's perspective is not really given in these narratives in a way that's realistic i mean matthew goes into like you know joseph joseph is obviously struggling with his like um honor about this like pregnancy um but they don't give you any clue into like mary's feelings about the pregnancy or what she might be dealing with or how she's dealing with these this alleged journey for the census or uh, a flight to Egypt, like post birth. Um, yeah. There's not really a woman's perspective in the text themselves or um, in the Reddit comments. I mean, I think that one of the, a few people have said, you know, like these are not historical stories or their main purpose is to give us some sort of a spiritual um, meaning. Um and I think that's like a fair perspective. The problem that I think is that how do you know what the spiritual meaning is if the stories can't be relied on? Or you can't make sense of the spiritual meaning that the authors are trying to portray if you butcher what the authors are trying to portray in their narrative. And I think when you combine the two narratives, trying to force a history on top of it, that's what you do. You miss what Matthew's saying. You miss what Luke is saying. You miss the motifs they're giving. You miss the reason for their literary devices. And you miss the sort of um, interesting way that they're crafting a narrative for Jesus's birth using, I mean, it's much more interesting to me to look at the common elements and see how they're used in the narratives in totally different ways in a different narrative and say, oh, that's fascinating. Matthew and Luke probably both they both had to get Jesus to Nazareth, and they chose to do it in a totally different way. They both had to have Jesus born in Bethlehem, and they chose to do it in a different way. Um, because I think that's actually what happened. I think the way John laid it out is what was the case. They had elements that they needed in their birth um, narratives, and they worked those elements in in a way that was 
creative and have been lasting enough that they, I mean, Luke's birth narrative is still the definitive Christmas story. It's the one that you hear most of the time um, at your Christmas services. It's the one that people think of when they think of the Christmas story with the shepherds seeing the star. It's the one, like, nobody memorializes the death of the innocents on Christmas cards. It's um, So Luke's narrative has had a power and a lasting impact, I think even, like, a secularized version of it. So, but if you just combine the two narratives, you don't get that same story. Yeah, and I wanted to talk really quickly about the um, the star, the uh, the magi uh, follow the star to find the house where um, Jesus is, and I've heard it said before, and I think it's a really good point. How do you exactly find a star that's over a particular house? I mean, if you look at a star in the sky, would you be able to follow that star and then go to the house that is above it? Just off the top of my head, people did use stars to navigate. Like, that was how seafaring functioned. And I don't right. know. Maybe, right, yeah, but it, it, it can get you to the right town. I don't know about the right house. It could get you traveling in the right direction, but it it literally says... Like the star was over the house, that, and that's how they knew which house it was. Yeah, the Magi are interesting because, I mean, they're literally magicians. That's like the root of the word. And um, for them to be included in the Christmas story is sort of scandalous in a way because um, if you think about early Christianity, you have, um, you know, like acts where like uh, sorcerers and magicians were condemned and Paul certainly condemning sorcery and magic. Um, so it's a fascinating thing that um, Matthew has this like uh, sort of like, it's just mentioned in the gospel and not really um, elaborated on, but like, so you have these magicians from the East that are coming and, um, I think it's like, again, I don't think it's beneficial to Christianity to look for some sort of like a scientific explanation for like a motif that's in the story. Um, people have said, oh, it's a comet because Haley's comet, like like looking for like a historical event that it's describing. I think it's maybe possible that it used some sort of like historical, like a comet or some sort of a astrological event as a guide but i i just feel like also like the story is clearly saying they followed a star that like like actually directed them over a house um to try to say that that's like i just don't think that it's a really historical element i just think it's an element of the story that's supposed to be magical and mysterious um i have a real like this whole like movement of uh, apologetics that like looks for um, like apocalyptic events that like match to the Bible. I just like really have a problem with uh, in principle. Yeah, the um, that's how I've heard Christians answer that star question. They say, "Well, it's not a star like we see in the sky now. It was some kind of supernatural star that was guiding them." But uh, but ultimately, I think the interesting thing to me about um, the Gospels, is that they are polemics. They're arguing in favor of something or against something. And what could they be arguing against? Well, we know, even in the Bible itself, from the Gospel of John, that people were saying Jesus was not born in Bethlehem. Jesus is not in the line of David. And we know from other ancient sources, like um, what we have from Celsus, 
that um, these were actual accusations leveled against Christians and against Jesus. And um, so these are an attempt to answer these things, which is why, okay, well, we have to have Jesus born in Bethlehem. Like He probably wasn't born in Bethlehem. He's from Nazareth, but they had to get him into Bethlehem and they had to put him in the line of David. And they, they did it in two completely different ways. And um, when we get to Bible versus Bible, we'll talk about the genealogies and uh, some of the problems with that. But they also accomplish, um, they accomplish connecting Jesus' lineage to David in two very different ways. Um, but before we get into that, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the historical problems? So there's a few historical problems. Um, Luke has Jesus being um, born during the time of Quirinius's governorship of Syria. Um, Matthew has him being born in the time of Augustus. Uh, Augustus actually dies before Quirinius is governor, if I'm remembering my timeline correctly. Um, but the timelines don't match up. I've heard people say... Oh, Quirinius had uh, two reigns, or there were yeah. two Quiriniuses, yeah. or there was two reigns of Quirinius, and um, again, they're trying to uh, make this work as best they can. Yeah, and I think it's, again, like, part of what you should do when you're looking at something historically is not to jump to conclusions to try to add to um, what the data you're looking at to match your conclusion, but you should be looking at the data and then drawing some sort of conclusion and then re-examining your basic premise. And um, so if you're trying to match the governorship of Quirinius with um, the time of Augustus and the historical sources are saying they don't match, then you shouldn't just uh, speculate that there's another Quirinius or that there was a reign of Quirinius that we don't know about. I think that's a big historical jump. Um the census, um, the time that Luke says the census happens or when we speculate to Jesus's birth does not align with the census that we know happened under Quirinius. Um, and we know this from uh, different historical sources. One is Josephus. That's the most accurate. Uh, the consensus holds to Josephus's view. Um, and he has the um, census taking place. Well, he, it doesn't align with Jesus's birth. Um, the way that Luke does. Um, Eusebius, another early source, also has a differing date for the census, um, but it doesn't align with Luke either. Um, so, and none of them, by the way, no, no historical census has ever required people to go back to the homeland, like to where their ancestry hails from, um, as it's described in the Bible. And it wasn't called by... Um, by Rome either the I mean the details of the census are essentially all wrong in um in Luke so everything that he says about the census is there was a census under Quirinius that's the one thing that he gets right the date is wrong the way the function the function of how they would have done the census is wrong who called the census is wrong um everything is essentially wrong I've heard um, historians talk about this idea that they would have had to travel back to their um, ancestral homeland um, to to register for the census as being like a ridiculous logistical nightmare that um, there's no evidence in history of that ever happening and it wouldn't work even if it did because you would literally have people just traveling all over the place um, and uh, yeah. I mean, it also seems convenient for Luke's per- point that Jesus is from like the ancestral line of David. 
right? Exactly. Like, that's so, and that's the point. So it's like this is his ancestral homeland. Just to like emphasize that point, like, oh, you know, he's also he's being born in Bethlehem, so don't worry about that because they're traveling there. That's how he gets them there. So one, but also it's like a, a explanation point on from the line of David for Luke. Um, so you can see perfectly how it would like fulfill a function for Luke to have this in his story. Um, but he does a bad job of getting the details right. Um, which again, may not have really been his focus. Like Luke also like ties it to a census that like was, um, like ended up causing a Jewish revolt. So it would be, um, a nice illusion for him to make to that census. Like when he has like the Jewish Messiah being born who eventually will free his people. Um, so that's really the historical issues um, that we know of in Luke. Um, in Matthew, uh, the slaughter of the innocents, there's absolutely no other historical um, attestation for that. Um, and you I, would expect there would be. And it's like people think there is, which is weird, because uh, that's a comment that you hear all the time. And I know His, that I always thought that there was some sort of... That, when that, you say... When you say people think there is, you don't mean not scholars. I I mean people like the average evangelical. Um, right. I think like harbors the belief that there actually is historical attestation to the slaughter right. of the innocents, and there just isn't. There's nothing. Um, there's just the Bible. That's it. Um, and I think every scholar, um, that is a historical critic, uh, thinks that it's just a literary uh, invention. That's a good overview, Ben, of the historical problems. Thank you. And, um, But why don't we dive right in, if it's okay with you guys, into the genealogies in the segment Bible versus Bible. Let's do it. And now it's time for Bible versus Bible. Okay, welcome to Bible versus Bible. Uh, today we're going to talk about... Uh, the Christmas story some more, and the genealogies. And um, uh, th there are genealogies that are given um, of Jesus and his family lineage. And um, these are both trying to connect um, Jesus to the Davidic line, which uh, it was believed that the Messiah would have to come from that Davidic line, which is why both Matthew and Luke have that. But... Um, these genealogies differ from one another, and the question is, um, can those con seeming contradictions be resolved? So the genealogies are a huge, huge problem. Um, they have more contradictions than any other um, like complementary passages in the Bible. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that they contradict. So you, yeah, so you have two different genealogies and some of the names, this is what always confuses me about it is some of the names are the same. Like as you're going through it, you find the same name here and there. And then some of them are very different. If you look at um, it, it, it's interesting because both of them lead up to Joseph. They don't lead up to Mary. So if we're talking bloodline, like Jesus, according to Christians, didn't have any of Joseph's blood in him anyway. So I've heard some Christians say, oh, well, one of them, I think Matthew, is actually giving Mary's bloodline, not Joseph's, but then um, but then just uses Joseph's name anyway, uh, because that was like 
the customary way to do it, which is just not true. Yeah, there's not really like uh, ancient um, genealogies that would go through the mother's line anyway. Um, so even though it does explicitly says that it goes through Joseph's line, um, although Matthew is like careful to make sure that it's clear that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, um, it uh, it's clearly not through Mary's line. I mean, that's something, <laughs> again, if you want to just make your own genealogy, um, but that's not what Matthew is saying in his genealogy. He's clearly going to uh, the line of Joseph. No, I mean, it's a it's an example of, you know, people just adding whatever fact, creating whatever factoid they want to uh, resolve the problem for themselves, which is amazing that Christians do that. They're literally willing to say, when Matthew says that uh, this is Joseph's line, it's wrong. It's actually Mary's line. They're just completely okay with saying that. And the, the same people will argue for the inerrancy of Scripture. It just kind of boggles my mind. Yeah, I mean, there's missing names in Matthew's genealogy. Um, he, like, repeats. It's possible that there's, like, scribal errors that he um, he copies names that are very similar into two names. Um, it's just, And there's a definitely a numerological thing going on there with the numbering. Yeah, I mean, I think both of the genealogies are, like, political documents in the same sense that the narr- the birth narratives are. Like, they're trying to prove a point about Jesus's lineage. It's not a good reflection of history, um, these genealogies, but it does show you what the authors were trying to do to, in the same way that um, they took these common elements in the birth narratives and tried to create a plot around it. They do a very similar thing with the genealogy, where they're trying to trace back to make sure that it's clear that um, Jesus is in um, the line of David. Um, I think the most interesting thing in Matthew's genealogy um, is the way that it has the, like, uh, scandalous women, um, because it obviously, I feel like those uh, names are included in order to, uh, like, soften the blow of the scandal of Mary's pregnancy. Um, and to show that, like, even in the line of David, the uh, women that have had sort of like uh, some sort of a scandal have been used uh, for God's purpose and uh, to bring the Messiah. So even in that, it's like uh, answering some sort of a, a charge that was probably out there about, uh, like, I feel like this whole like pregnancy um, during betrothal um, was a big scandal in early Christianity. Um, like these rumors that were floating around that we see in Celsus about like, you know, Jesus's patronage and, um, you know, not Joseph not being his father biologically, um, I think was a scandal that these two gospels especially were trying to address. Um, so right around in the 90s, probably, um, this must have been a charge that was like out there in the church either that, or not out there against, like, the early Christians, either that Jesus wasn't from the line of David, he wasn't born in Bethlehem, um, he was born of some sort of a scandalous sexual uh, affair, or, you know, not from, not the biological son of his father. And so these two genealogies and the narratives are really, like, just trying to answer those questions and those charges. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating to look at um, this idea that 
the Bible is trying to answer like the same question, like, okay, is Jesus the Messiah? Well, the Messiah has to come from the Davidic line and come from, and be born in Bethlehem. But it's answered, and that's how it's answered in Matthew and Luke, but it's answered differently in other places. In John, it's answered differently, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, about when the, um, when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, hey, you can't be the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus doesn't say, actually, I was born in Bethlehem. Remember, John has no birth narrative at all. And Mark has no birth narrative at all. So everything we have comes from Matthew and Luke. Paul even doesn't talk about the virgin birth or Bethlehem or anything like that. He The only thing he says at one point, he says he was born of a woman. So that doesn't really get us anywhere. And then you have the book of Hebrews, which talks about Jesus um, being in the line of Melchizedek, being like the same, the type of uh, prophet as Melchizedek. And, and the whole point of Melchizedek is that he wasn't a Jew. He didn't he didn't, uh, he doesn't have that um, Judean lineage. So it's, it's trying to, I think, polemically answer that same question. In the book of Hebrews, um, it deals with this also, and it tries to answer the question of um, the messiahship of Jesus or the messianic nature of Jesus. And how can, how can this be if, if Jesus is not in the line of David? And it says, well, no, J- Jesus is very similar to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek um, was not uh, a Jew. So I just feel like many different um, authors are trying to answer the same questions and doing it in different ways. Yeah, I think it's super useful, actually, the way Katie um, had the section organized um, with questions when we were just looking at the narratives, because that's a way to really um, figure out like how the Bible is answering questions and the, how different authors of the Bible are answering questions. It's like you write a question, what is the author's answer to that question? Forget about the rest of, like the systematized uh, way to answer a question doesn't really get you what the author is trying to say. So if you're asking, you know, like, how do you prove that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, you're going to get a bunch of different answers from the different authors in the Bible. Or... um yeah, like, is Jesus in the line of David, or is he Jesus more of a mosaic figure? Well, you may, you know, like, the you'll get various answers by various authors. Um, so I think that's a good point, John. So we're going to, um, next week, talk about the um, some more about the Christmas story, and we're going to talk about specifically the prophecies. Like, did, did the Old Testament actually prophesy the prophesize the coming of Jesus and and is Jesus the Messiah and does does the life of Jesus um, fulfill Old Testament prophecy which I guess is a much bigger question but we're going to focus on the birth narrative specifically because especially in Matthew um, the claim is made that um, this fulfills Old Testament prophecy and um, that's a very big question in and of itself so we thought it might be a good idea to kind of make that its own episode and we have a few other things to deal with but um, I thought we would move on to false witness. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. False witness. This is false witness, the segment where we take a look at three verses, two of which are real Bible verses, and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and determine which ones are real and which one is the imposter. 
After we've each made our choice, I will open the sealed envelope to reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. So, first verse. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Second verse. Behold, I come unto my own to fulfill all things which I have made known unto the children of men from the foundation of the world, and to do the will both of the Father and of the Son, of the Father because of me, and of the Son because of my flesh. And behold, the time is at hand, and the, and this night shall the sign be given. And number three. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. What do y'all think? Hmm. Well, for me, number one, um, seem, I, I'm pretty sure I've read this verse. So I'm going to say number one is real. Um, what stands out to me is number two, I don't ever remember hearing Jesus talk about a, um, a sign being given this night, um, unless it's talking about like the last supper. For me, I feel like it's number three because I just don't remember reading about Rama or Rahel. And the ending, because they were not, really doesn't make a lot of sense mm -hmm. from a grammatical standpoint. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> so I think number one is, unless it was just a really minor change in um, the language, I know number one, is I think, is real. Um, I think... Number three is real except for the not. So I'm wondering if that's just like a translation, like a different version than what I'm used to. Um, because the rest of it is the prophecy that Matthew... Two of these are prophecies that Matthew butchers. Maybe all three of them are, but two of them definitely are. Um, number two is interesting because there's like problematic theology mixed into that verse, but it might be real still. Um I'm going to say that it's number three, um, just because I think maybe there was a slight variation to the verse. But like I said, that could be a translation. Um, and I'm just going to go with my gut that number two, even though I think it is problematic, it may be real. <clears throat> I think it might be from a Gnostic gospel or something, but I'm going to stick with my initial thought that number three has been altered. Okay, I'm going to make my choice number two. Like I said, because I feel like I'm trying to picture the, like where this would have happened in the narrative. And the only thing I can really think of possibly is the Last Supper, but I'm pretty sure this is not from that. So I'm going to guess number two is the false witness. Okay, I'm going with number three, even though historically John has always been correct. <laughs> well, I'm in the Not episode... falling in line. <laughs> Well, in the episodes that you've been on, I think I've been correct, but Ben can tell you in like the seven episodes before, like I'm usually not right. I mean, usually our producer does a pretty good job of tricking us. It's always very hard. She does a good job. Okay, so I will open the wax sealed envelope that our producer Diana has given me. And 
Okay, let's start with uh, number one, which we all believe is real. Uh, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This comes from Micah 5.2. And I'll go right down the list. Number two, uh, behold, I come unto my own to fulfill all things which I have made known under the children of men from the foundation of the world. And to do the will both of my father and of the both of the father and of the son and of the father because of me, and of the son because of my flesh. And behold, the time is at hand, and this night shall be shall the sign be given. Comes from the Book of Mormon, Third Nephi one fourteen. So that is indeed the false witness. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I did get it right. I, um, but I as prom- you were reading it a second time, I'm like, this is probably like a Mormon scripture. <laughs> Um, and that means that number three is also real. It comes from Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. That is a little bit weird sounding, but it's from Jeremiah. So I'm going to make a request that Diana mail the wax sealed envelope <laughs> to my house. Okay. Um, <laughs> for the next episode. <laughs> Okay, so obviously uh, my fellow skeptics don't trust me. The skepticism is not limited to like only one <laughs> domain, you know. You can't start being skeptical and then just stop when it gets to the wax sealed envelope that we right. can't see. Um, okay, <laughs> do you want to close the show with a quote? Okay. Okay, so this quote is from Daniel B. Wallace, who's a uh, Greek and New Testament professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And what he says is, and this was in an article he wrote about um, Luke and the problem of the census. Evangelicals tend to allow their doctrinal convictions to guide their research. It is better to not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Methodologically investigate with an objective as mind as possible, allowing the evidence to lead where it will. At all times, pursue truth. Then, when possible, conclusions have been met come back to the presuppositions, and wrestle with how both relate to one another. Most of us recognize that's what we must, that we must do this in textual criticism. Why not in historical criticism, too? And I think that's actually a really good method. Maybe you start with a presupposition, um, you examine the evidence, um, see where the evidence leads without your presupposition, tainting it, and then you can go back to your presupposition and reevaluate based on evidence. All right. Thanks, Ben. And and thanks, Katie. All right. Yeah, thank you guys. Excited for part two. Definitely. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com.